0: you're listening to the we are libertarians podcast network find all of our shows at we libertarians.com you're listening to the we are libertarians network learn more at we libertarians.com the boss hog of liberty podcast is the latest hit on the we are libertarians network each week jeremiah moral and dakota davis explore life in henry county Indiana. it's a show about our circle of friends public officials and our experiences observation, life, humor, and 20% politics. Boss Hog of Liberty is the day-to-day happenings of Henry County, Indiana, which is just like your community. Add us on iTunes and sample us today. Dear Leader would want you to. Hey there, Liberty lovers. This is Mark Clare of the Lions of Liberty podcast, where we strive to bring you great conversations about the ideas of liberty three days a week, every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Check us out at lionsofliberty.com. Hey, Liberty Rockers. This is Johnny Rocket from the Johnny Rocket Launchpad. Each week, I strive to bring you the best guests and talk radio. The Johnny Rocket Launchpad delivers weekly interviews of noteworthy politicians, economists, and activists. The Johnny Rocket Launchpad is bringing the party to the Libertarian Party and launching ideas in your direction. Check it out at johnnyrocketlaunchpad.com or find us on iTunes. Each show is action packed, explicit, and a lot of fun. So join me at JohnnyRocketLaunchpad.com every week for the newest episode. Keep Liberty alive and rock and roll. Welcome to We Are Libertarians. I'm your host, Chris Spangle. We bring you all of the irreverence modern politics deserves while putting people before political parties. We examine current events from a libertarian perspective with the goal of leaving you better informed. Please be sure to rate and review us on iTunes, like us on Facebook, and subscribe on Patreon at WeAreLibertarians.com. In exchange for supporting our program, we give you all kinds of bonus content and free stuff. I just explained radio uh, to our, our bonus subscribers. I always... Leave the As I'm setting up, I leave all the uh, recordings running so you can check that out if you're a bonus subscriber. Uh, this show is crowdsourced, so you can send us news in our Facebook group or Discord channel. Find that at WeAreLibertarians.com. We're always taking your questions and comments via email at editor at Please be warned that this show is raw, unedited, and authentic, so the language is sometimes strong and offensive. Um, this is going to be uh, a show about, as the title says, suicide and depression, so maybe not uh, for the kiddos, not that you probably are listening to We Are Libertarians with your kids anyways, but uh, just so you're aware, uh, because I, I am I'm alone tonight. Uh, it is just me. For the first time ever, I will be doing an episode of, of just me and you talking into this microphone, and did that for a couple reasons. First, Harry. Harry's fine. I've not lost another co-host. Uh, Harry has this new job that is, let's be honest, really inconvenient for us, isn't it? We're very happy for Harry to, to be employed and to provide for his family and to have a job that he loves. That's great for Harry, but what about us? Okay, It's been like four Tuesday nights and we haven't had Harry here. Uh, the audience and I are restless, Harry. We miss you. So Harry has told me he will be back next week. He has just been super busy getting set up with a new job, and they've been in moving and all kinds of crazy stuff. So Harry has not been here for that reason, not because he and I are fighting, uh, which is what most people speculate. So uh, it, it is just me, and I didn't invite uh, another person on. Because this one I think is going to be a little more personal, and uh, I, I just have a lot that I want to say about this particular subject, and giving someone else space to talk might cut off the main flow, and so I just I just want to talk to you directly and have a conversation with you um, about a subject that I think a lot of us, a lot is, I'll tell you what, uh, so I posted something, it's at com. C-H-R-I-S-S-P-A-N-G-L-E dot com. And it's titled, How to Fight Depression and Suicidal Thoughts. And it has been extremely well received, I guess. Uh, very, let's see, where. how many likes has it had at this point? Uh, a tremendous amount. People, I just, I've noticed that when... I open up and I talk about some of the stuff that I go through on an emotional level, I get a lot of people responding back, thinks I needed that privately. And I think there is a hunger for people to be authentic about the struggles that they have emotionally and mentally. And you see it in things like the rise of Jordan Peterson. I mean, Peterson is giving people a framework, especially young men, a framework to deal with their mental health. Uh, The popularity of Brene Brown, for instance, with both men and women, but particularly women, uh, is, is someone that really speaks to a lot of women. And really, she helped me a ton with her book, The Gifts of Imperfection. And I think culturally, we're at a point where suicide and depression are the conversation that we need to have, but we're not having it. And we'll talk a little bit more later on in the in the show about society and and culture and why I kind of think we're at a point where suicide and depression have become major issues. You know, it may seem like a funny topic for a political podcast, but I don't I think if you listen for any period of time, you sort of know that We Are Libertarians is not your normal political podcast. I. I am not. Your normal libertarian in that I am. Um, I struggle with economics, as many of you pointed out when I talked about human rights or property rights, uh, which I will cover next episode. I I'm probably more interested in sociology and how we interact with each other than probably any other field of study. You know, a lot of libertarians are really into economics. They love Murray Rothbard. They love to talk about. I had to look down at the recorder to make sure it was recording to talk about how we interact with each other on an economic level and I get that economics is the foundation of everything it's the study of human behavior blah 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 um but I I'm I think people what what we were kind of saying last episode is not that that isn't true but that people probably don't really look through that lens very often and I I don't um, and I know that makes me a bad libertarian. That's part of the reason that I'm the third largest libertarian podcast and no one talks about us because I'm not sitting here just repeating catchphrases that would make me popular. Uh Not that I'm bitter or anything. Um, so I think it's important for us to have the conversation about how we interact with each other as often as we do how the government interacts with us. I think we are as libertarians very focused on the government's role and the state's role in our lives and how that affects us. But if you get rid of the state, what's on the other side of that? And how do we interact with each other? And I think that's a simultaneous conversation that you've got to have. What kind of world do you want to structure? What kind of society and culture do you want to have? And I've noticed this trend with libertarians lately, uh, especially the last couple of years, and I think maybe it's because it's a lot of new libertarians and they're not as secure in their ideology, so they kind of say what everybody else says. But there's a an unwillingness to talk about cultural issues within the libertarian movement because we don't want to offend anybody from the right or left. We want to We want to pick up the stragglers from those teams, and we don't want to, as libertarians, appear like we're taking sides in the culture war, you know, which by and large is stupid, and it's demagogues trying to drive people one way or the other. And so we we talk about things, you know, we posted, I posted my uh, article, How to Fight Depression and Suicidal Thoughts, on the We Are Libertarians Facebook page. Why is this here? This doesn't involve the government. If people want to kill themselves, go for it. Okay, <laughs> you know, I don't want to live in a world where suicide is encouraged. And yes, every person should have the right to kill themselves if they want to kill themselves. I mean, making suicide illegal is pretty much a stupid thing anyways. Like, what sense does that make? But should people kill themselves? You can have that conversation. Uh, You can have an opinion on what is right and wrong, regardless of what the non-aggression principle speaks to. So I think while those, those axioms, those constants are really important, I do think... We have to have the freedom to speak about societal issues. And suicide and depression are two things that people don't want to talk about. Um, And I think you see in the response to someone like Anthony Bourdain committing suicide, people don't know how to deal with it. I think we've gotten to a place where we have stopped talking about so many deep issues that people don't know how to talk about. Religion and politics. You are not supposed to talk about politics or religion, and so, so people have forgotten how people have forgotten how to talk about their emotions and and their uh, wide range. Like, I, I don't know why this was such a transformational moment for me, but in twenty thirteen, I was writing an article for a local uh, out, news outlet called the Howie Political Report, and I was writing about the lead up to World War I, and how Italy played a role in uh, the lead up to World War I, and, excuse me, the cat's getting in the way, see, there's going to be points where I'm going to have to pause, because I'm all by myself here, and I'm going to have to take a drink, the voice is still, it's about 95%, I'm going to have to take a drink, but the cat, I, I need to get my own studio, because I've got to get away from these cats, like, they're driving me crazy, but please, get away from me, get off, get So, in 2013, I'm writing this article about the lead-up to World War I, and I knew my great-grandfather was kind of born around World War I, so I looked back at what was happening when he was born in international affairs, and I realized in writing that that I had no idea what the names of my great-great-grandparents were. These were people who were having my great-grandfather in 1911, and so that's... One, two, three generations removed, and I had no idea what their name was. Uh, Obviously, I think if I were to have children, my great-great-grandchildren might know my name because we have more digital records, but it sort of freaked me out (laughs) that these two people, who their emotional lives, the choices that they made, the places that they chose to live, the timing in which they chose to have my great-grandfather the ways that they raised him the traumas that maybe they dealt with the all the different things that went into shaping me uh like there's a direct impact when it's people who are three generations before you those choices make a big difference and when you sit and like really think about where the world will be in a hundred years and your place in it I think millennials especially have a sense of destiny. There was an an article today saying that millennials expect to be millionaires, so they're not even saving. Like people aren't starting to save till 36 because they're going to retire at 56 and they're all going to be millionaires because they're all going to be rich and famous. and uh, I'm not gonna lie. I have that attitude too. I, I do save, but I'm like, of course I'm gonna be rich and successful. Like I'm damn near 40, okay? Like maybe you're just gonna be mildly successful at a hobby. <laughs> save okay you're not going to be the next Paris Hilton so so we have this sense of destiny as millennials we think well everybody's going to know who we are and maybe nobody's going to know who you are and so it really reinforced to me the importance of what impact you make on your immediate life and how you fit into the groups that you exist in and how important that is uh And I think it was an important moment for me personally, both politically, because I sort of realized there's more to politics and life uh, than being a libertarian. I think there is, on any political front, and, and there are people listening to this who their identity is, I'm the libertarian guy. And they get so bent out of shape when there's any kind of criticism of libertarianism or libertarians or the party or rand paul because it's like a th- it's a a threat to their identity and emotional health is so incredibly important in how you really handle political discourse and how you talk to other people uh so it's when I really started to go, okay, maybe I I should probably think about my relationship with a lot of different things. And then I got divorced. (laughs) And that really was obviously a very tough time. I have been doing this podcast since I was married. Uh, If You go back and listen in February of 2014, early in the month, uh, or whatever episodes in February where Gina, Greg, and I are sitting around the table, and then all of a sudden, like, I stopped talking halfway through. It's because my wife was packing up and she left that night. Uh, the podcast actually was, like, the the match <laughs> that lit her leaving. So, listeners have kind of walked through the divorce years with me, and I've been candid, especially more in recent years, about a lot of it, but I have learned a ton, and some of the most important things I've learned are the origins of my depression, uh, why I have suicidal ideation, why I uh, really struggle with my own emotional life. And it is is—it's uh, very difficult to talk about. And it's difficult... It's, it's not difficult, really, for... In the beginning, it was difficult for me to kind of open up and talk about some of the stuff that I was learning, because you don't want to be judged, uh, and that that's still part of it. Um, you have a very strong sense, when you are a person who struggles with depression, mm-hmm. that you're going to be exiled, and you are barely worth the interest that people show in the first place. So if you open up and talk about some of these things, then it it becomes an excuse for people to stop talking to you because you're weird, you're broken. And I'm just not that way anymore. And when I see somebody like Anthony Bourdain uh, commit suicide, I really feel like it is partly my responsibility as somebody who has made extraordinary efforts and, and progress in dealing with my own struggles with suicide and depression, I feel like it's partly my responsibility to talk about it. Uh, I, I think it is... Let me just kind of read through the article. and Maybe we can kind of stop and I can annotate this a little bit. Uh, because the response that I got from writing this told me that maybe there is a discussion here and maybe talking to you about this is something that you want to hear that you need to hear. Uh, because I, I, I just am always amazed at the people that will message and say, I'm struggling. Because these are some of the people that, oh, wow, this person really has it together. And they don't. They're, they're privately struggling. And uh, so let me start with uh, the article. Um, suicide spiked 10% after Robin Williams took his life. My sincere hope is that doesn't happen after Anthony Bourdain's passing. Many genuine people are encouraging friends to talk to friends, and that helps. But I think it's important for people to speak about their struggles with suicidal ideation like Bourdain did. People like writer Yashar Ali dealt with depression for the first time, and he knew who could help him. And it was Anthony Bourdain. Those of us doing well have to leave a roadmap for encouragement to those that aren't. And... That's really one of the reasons that I want to have this conversation, because when you talk about it, people get hope, and you don't feel like a stranger. If you're sitting there and you're listening and you're somebody who struggles with depression, you're not alone. You are uh, so much less alone than you realize. Uh, most of the people around you probably are dealing with it, Um the CDC put out a study shortly uh, before Anthony Bourdain passed away saying that suicide rates increased nearly 30% since 1996, or 1999. Um, so, in addition, rates of emergency department visits for non-fatal self-harm, a main risk factor for suicide, increased 42% from 01 to 16. Uh... In 2016 alone, nearly 45,000 suicides, 15.6 out of 100,000 of our population, occurred in the U.S. Uh, for people ages 10 and up, uh, they increased among amongst both sexes, all racial and ethnic groups, and all urbanization levels. Suicide rates have also increased among persons in all age groups over 75. With adults ranged 45 to 64, having the largest absolute rate increase from 13.2 per 1,000 to Uh, 19.2. I read somewhere else in here that the largest at-risk population are young men, teenage men, which we'll touch on later. So, you are not alone. This is something that a lot of people struggle with. And when we look at somebody like Anthony Bourdain, we ask how can he take his own life when so many people love him? Is he at the top of his field? Of course he is. Is he financially wanting for anything? Absolutely not. Age and years of drug abuse likely robbed him of a healthy chemical balance. And when you face depression, darkness follows. And It's hard to look at people like Anthony Bourdain and and understand why. And I think people who don't have depression or suicidal ideation, they don't understand it. And when I see somebody like Anthony Bourdain, I do understand it because it doesn't matter that Anthony Bourdain is famous or rich or has great relationships with people or has the life that we all kind of dream about. Depression doesn't care. Uh, a chemical imbalance doesn't care. Uh, to be honest, I write, the last four months have been very difficult. It's easy to hide with enough practice. Due to a medicine switch, I decided to leave serotonin drugs for Welbutrin. The lack of serotonin led to some days of despair. There's no rhyme and reason to it beyond that. Despite some personal turbulence in my life, it generally is terrific. I'm, in, I'm excelling in physical, emotional, and my spiritual life and i add please don't worry because when you say i struggle with these things and it, people like oh i'm here to talk to you I'm like i know you're here to talk to me like i under, i have a support system i know that people are there to talk to me like i'm not in a place where i don't recognize that people want to connect with me it's i'm saying these things because i want people who don't think that people care to reach out to people that actually do care And one of the the worst parts about depression is that it is a spiraling disease. It is a disease of the mind where it it starts and then you spiral down and the low self-esteem just continues to beat you down and beat you down. And it lies to you and tells you that you're not worth reaching out to people that love you. It lies to you and tells you that even if you do reach out, it won't matter. People, if they do help, they they don't actually care about you, there's always a little way that depression constantly kind of plants that seed of doubt in your mind. And so when you do go to do things that do improve your situation, there's always that voice that raises that doubt. And that doubt, when it creeps in, is the poison that kind of spreads throughout all of it. And, uh, you know, people, thousands of people listen to me, For instance, there's something called uh, the imposter syndrome, and every creative person has it. Every person who does anything that you see, Lady Gaga, Mel Gibson, Harry Styles, um, Walt Whitman, anybody who does creative work, creative work is generally vulnerable, and so you're putting yourself out there, and when you do that, there's always that little doubt, right? Right? So, here I am. I'm somebody who has worked in libertarianism for 10 years. I have thousands of people that listen to me on a, on a weekly basis. I have a lot of... Uh, I, I have credibility in the space. But when I go to a place like Students for Liberty, for instance, at the conference this past February, I walk in thinking, eh, I don't want to bother anybody. I, you know, I don't want to get in the way. I don't want... You know, nobody w- will want to talk to me anyways. <laughs> and, and you, the listener, are going, wow, I'd love to hear him talk to other people. But in my mind, because I spend all day with me and I see all the bad things that I do or think all the bad things that I think or have all the little um, paper cuts of insecurity throughout a time period, you, you, you don't see yourself the way that other people may see you. And so it can cause you from doing things that are healthy for you. Part of the, the biggest uh, thing in depression that I think really hurts people is isolation. Because what you do is you withdraw out of a sense of not being good enough. And you withdraw and you end up isolating yourself to the point that you're not connecting with other people. And when you connect with other people, they're lifting you up. They're building you up by and large. I mean, there are those people who cut you down. You've got to get away from those people. But your friends, your family, most of your coworkers, these are people who make you feel good about life. You share interests. There's an energy between you and those people. And when you kind of withdraw that energy from your life, you start to kind of power down. Um, I guess maybe the way depression feels is uh, like Iron Man, You've seen Iron Man where he, in the movies, he has that chest thing and he's got the really cool one when he comes back from, you know, first he he gets one built in this cave when he's kidnapped and then he comes back and he builds like a kick-ass one. Well, that's what life is like when you're doing self-care, right? Which we'll talk about in a moment. Then you start to like downgrade to that that second one. And then you get all the way down to like where you don't have it. (laughs) And and you kind of are just lacking any kind of energy. There's a restlessness where you feel like you have so much to do, but you don't want to do any of it. And then you make yourself feel guilty for not doing any of it. And then you make yourself feel like a piece of garbage for not doing it. And then you feel bad about feeling guilty And so eventually you just get to a place where you just kind of crash. And I think if you don't, I think everybody has kind of had that in life. The the difference between the blues and depression, uh, if you have the blues, you kind of have that for a week, you know, or maybe there's a hardship and you kind of have it for a month. But if you have it chronically, then... Like, if I don't take good care of myself, I can I can live in that state. I lived in that state for my 20s. And that's what depression is, where you're constantly falling down. I guess depression is kind of like Jenga. If your personhood, if your inner life is like uh, um, a Jenga tower, you can have one little rejection here and that'll pull out a block. You can have um, a bad day at work and that'll pull out a block. One missed workout. You pull out another block. And if you're not doing things to put those blocks back actively, one day you just sort of wake up and you realize, like, you're real shaky. And I'm now at a point in my life where I can recognize what those blocks are, uh, and I can recognize when I'm shaky, as opposed to back in the day when I would just let myself fall over, wallow there for a while, and then sort of half rebuild. (laughs) And you really have to watch yourself. Um, that's probably the best way that I can describe how depression feels. Uh, if Here's some signs of depression. Now, listen, I make no bones that I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a medical doctor. Uh, I am just a podcast host who has done a lot of homework on himself and wants to share with you what I've learned. Um, these are the actual signs and symptoms of depression. And I will post an article about how depression happens if you want to read from Harvard how it works. I mean, there there was, in one of these articles, uh, they talk about how depression happens. It can be anywhere from, you know, women in their early 20s who did studies at Harvard found that they're. Amygdala or parts of their brain were like 14% smaller than everybody else's. Well, there's not really a way to fix that, but you can medicate or do things to kind of help solve that problem. I think for me, it, it probably is a structural thing in the brain, or it is a chemical thing. That is certainly, I mean, my mom has it, my grandfather had it, and that's sort of the lineage that I think I got it from. You know, my brother and sister don't really struggle with depression in any way, shape, or form that I can tell, uh, but I do, and I don't know why. Uh, I'm I'm thankful for it. I think that a person who deals with depression or anxiety, I think, is generally an intelligent person, uh, and I think they sometimes the brain. I'm not saying this about me, but in general, I've noticed people who have like a big brain that if they don't know how to manage it, it just goes right off into the ditch and then it's just like spinning its wheels. Uh, so you've got to manage your brain a little bit. Uh, so there's really no rhyme or reason. It's, it's not a matter of just being sad. Uh, it could be a structural thing, a chemical thing. It could be a life situation thing. Um, you know, going through a divorce, you're going to be depressed for about two years. Like th- almost no one is happy after, a, after a divorce. It takes a couple years, anywhere from two to five years, based on studies for full recovery. So some of the signs of depression, and you're feeling any of these or most of these for more than two weeks, then you may be depressed. That is persistent, sad, anxious, or empty mood, feelings of hopelessness or pessimism, irritability, feelings of guilt, worthlessness, or helplessness, loss of interest or pleasure in hobbies and activities, decreased energy or fatigue, this is um, a really important one, this is one that I experience a lot, it's like, why am I so tired, and then you kind of like sit and think, as I said last episode, you go, 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 you don't rest, because you know if you rest, you're going to start thinking, and you're going to actually have to reckon with all the emotions you're running from, And so, you get really burnt out and tired, and then you get laryngitis for three weeks. (laughs) So, your body uh, will manifest a lot of these symptoms if if you aren't careful. And so, decreased energy or fatigue, I think, is an important one. Uh, Loss of interest or pleasures and hobbies and activities. Decreased energy or fatigue. Moving or talking more slowly. Feeling restless or having trouble sitting still difficulty concentrating remembering or making decisions difficulty sleeping early morning awakening or oversleeping appetite and/ or weight changes thoughts of suicide or suicide attempts aches pains headaches cramps digestive problems without a clear physical cause uh, I get a lot of those and I'm sure you do too um, so and sometimes I manifest that by I, I I think I have a disease. I can be a hypochondriac because I need something to worry about. My brain goes, I need to cause trouble. Um so why does somebody kill themselves? Uh there's several different reasons. Uh there's six general reasons that people kill themselves. They made a mistake like um, you know, oxygen deprivation. <laughs> Let's put that in a family-friendly way. Uh, They have a philosophical desire to die. People just feel that uh, it's their time to go, and it's a reasoned decision. Maybe a uh, a, an end-of-life decision, like Robin Williams. They're crying out for help. You know, people don't know how to get help. They don't have the strength to say to friends and family, "I need help." And so there's an attempt, but then it ends up being a final situation. you know, if you swallow a, bio, a bottle of Tylenol, for instance, there's irreversible—you you can't heal your liver if you take a bottle of Tylenol, for instance. But people think, oh, I'll take this bottle of Tylenol and then I'll call the, the police. And maybe it's not as conscious as that, but that's what they do, and then they they there's just no saving them. Uh, it's an impulsiveness, you know, especially on drugs and alcohol. There's depression plus the medication of booze or alcohol. Uh, psychotic breaks, you know, schizophrenia, things like that, and depression. And um, I think in my case, I never, I, I don't think that I would ever or was ever going to really go through with it. Uh, I read about the power of suicidal ideation, that when you feel like things are so out of control and things are so chaotic, that the choice of whether to live or die is the only power that you have left. And it becomes like an empowerment thing. So you you dwell on it. You tunnel vision. You start thinking about it. You dwell on it. Uh, and that's another problem is that you dwell on it and your brain just kind of leads you there and you romanticize it. And then you put yourself in a position. I, I genuinely think that a lot of people who end up committing suicide they don't actually intend to go through with it. Maybe not a lot, but I think there's a fair percentage. And, and there are people who have jumped off of the Golden Gate Bridge who have lived, who say, the second I jumped off, I I regretted it. And it's because the brain goes into fight or flight and just fills your, blood, your brain with euphoric uh, chemicals, and it, like, reset the brain to where it's supposed to be. And... That can be in the case of cutting, for instance. For some people, that's a power. That's, it gives them endorphins, and it makes them feel good, uh, and it's a. it may not necessarily be a suicidal act, but then there's an accident in the process. So uh, I think it's important to say to you if you are struggling with it, or if you know someone who has talked about it, you need to take it seriously. When you get to a place, I know that the second I get to a place where I am thinking I don't want to live anymore, that is a huge red flag. Now, that used to be a state of living for me, and that is now a red flag. That is, that is, um, that is like blood in the urine or burning when you pee or uh, a really bad rash. Like that is, that is an emotional warning sign that something is incredibly wrong with your emotional life um and i think that you have to think about your emotional life in the way that you think about your physical life that if you don't do exercise on your emotional life then you need to you need to it, okay when i started working out a couple years ago 2 3 years ago it was really informative for a lot of my life because The way that I approached exercise, because I would go and I'd read books about how to do it because I didn't know how to do it. And then I would go and do it. And then you sort of do it and you feel like this is the right way to do it. And then you get a personal trainer and then you learn way more, way faster. Uh, Then you have to keep up the exercises and your body always kind of has the same responses. Like for me, I tore a rotator cuff in my shoulder so i always have like a certain way that my body responds if you're if you're pulling too hard on the weights and you're breaking form then you feel that that lurch in your body all of that kind of applies to your emotional life like you don't you weren't born necessarily necessarily with the knowledge on how to take care of your emotional life especially not in this day and age and so i think you owe it to yourself to read books that will teach you how to manage your emotions, to understand your emotions, to understand things like human attachment, human attraction, um, how to deal with depression, how your brain chemicals work, to recognize warning signs, but also to improve your life, to make yourself yourself feel better. Like I, I, I get down sometimes, but like my life is, I can't even believe that I let myself live the way that I lived in my twenties physically and emotionally. like I wish somebody had told me early on the things that I've learned in the last four years, uh, which is part of why I want to do this, because I don't want you to live miserably the way that I lived. Fat, demotivated, in your mom's basement. I was I was 24, 25 years old, living in my mom's basement, 320 pounds, fired from my... Uh, full-time job. I dropped out of college. I was working part-time for my dad as a janitor. I was, by every definition, a loser. I had nothing but self-loathing. I couldn't get a date. Uh, And it just kept spiraling and spiraling. And then I met my future wife, and she became my reason for living. And that sounds romantic to some of you. And then the healthy people heard Oh, <laughs> like that's a really good barometer. Like, how did you just take me saying I lived for my ex-wife? Did you hear romance? Well, that's probably a warning sign. And if you heard, oh, that's super unhealthy, then you understand healthy attachment in relationships. So that I think is like a de- like a a barometer. Okay, you hear and think different things and react different ways. When you've put in significant amount of time in things like therapy and reading books like By Brene Brown, Matthew McKay, Uh, I would say Jordan Peterson's book is actually really good as a self-help text. Um, I'm looking over here, uh, Melody Beatty's book on codependency. I I will post a list uh, for you guys if you want to go through it on on self-help books. Scary Close by Donald Miller. Read it in two hours. Really, really important. Uh, and so I because I was unhealthy emotionally, and I, I ended up in a bad marriage and lived miserably for the next six years and made someone else miserable. And it's because I just wouldn't take responsibility for myself. You know I, I almost felt like being overweight, let's be honest, morbidly obese and depressed was like a badge of honor. it was a, it was a status symbol. And it wasn't. It's like I, I kind of hate the memes that glorify depression and anxiety um, because it's not really a, like something to be glorified. Like it's really not great. I just remember in 2012 uh, driving to work every day and just like wanting to drive. Like I would drive over this bridge and I wanted to jerk the wheel right over onto the interstate every day to kill myself, you know? And there wasn't that thought that. Oh, well, what if I take somebody else out or what if I hurt somebody else? You know, I mean, it was it just wasn't a it just wasn't a great life. Um, And then I get divorced and I have absolutely no coping mechanisms whatsoever. All my coping mechanisms are terrible. You know, for me, the way that I've always coped is I overeat or I overspend or I am harsh with friends and family with sarcasm and uh being a professional speaker i have the ability to put together words that isolate me really quickly <laughs> um and i that first year after the divorce i didn't have anybody i mean it was greg like uh, you know for for whatever troubles greg and i have had i've said it before and all i will always say it like i don't know that i would have lived through that year if it weren't for Greg and my friend Hannah Drozich, uh, because they were it <laughs> and my friend, uh, another friend that I won't mention. So the, the Amanda story. Um, and you, you try and date and then you go out and date people and then you pick up bits of uh, wisdom. And I dated this one person in 2015 who was like, I'm in therapy and boy, do you need to be there? I was like, I don't know, I don't think I should do therapy, you know, I always resisted with my ex-wife, it's like, they're just gonna tell me I'm a broken toy, and they're just gonna confirm what a piece of garbage I am, and and she's like, you just say every piece of bad thinking, like, if you, if you hear, you should go to therapy, and you repel against it, you're wrong, like, I'm just gonna tell you flat out, I'm gonna be honest with you, if you think that you don't belong in therapy, you 100% belong in therapy, like, you are you are sick you're you're like diabetic but you refuse to take insulin and just eat Reese's cups all day like I know that sounds harsh but there is a reason that you have that resistance I I think when you are emotionally unhealthy you have a resistance to things that are healthy you know, I had a resistance to exercise. I thought it was the funniest tweet ever to tweet out that I was eating 2,000 calories while watching The Biggest Loser. Or I w- was reading books about divorce, and then there was this one book about children of divorce, of which I am one. Uh, the, my parents' divorce was the most traumatic thing that happened to me. It's, it is the root cause of a lot of my issues. And there was an, I read that, I got physically sick and pushed it back into the bookshelf and did not buy that book because there was a resistance there. And I didn't consciously understand it at the time, but it was an unconscious thing saying, nope, we're not going to deal with what is making us sick. Uh, So anytime I feel a resistance to something that is good for me, I stop and I think, why am I resisting this? Why am I resisting going to the gym? Why am I resisting reading this book? Why am I resisting doing this? Why am I procrastinating is maybe another way to put it. And when you really think about the root cause and you're honest with yourself, that's the thing you need to fix. you know. And I went to therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy has been incredibly important for me. Because what you do is you sit in a room with a person who cannot tell anyone in your life. It's different than talking to friends. Because this person cannot talk to anybody. In the back of your mind when you're talking to a friend, there's always that little thing like if I tell this person, will they tell this person? You know, I trust Harry with my life. But Harry could tell Bittner. You know, and there, so there's always, even if you, your closest friends, there's always in the back of your mind, they're judging me. Or they might tell someone who will judge me. A therapist, you know they are ethically bound to keeping your secret. Um. And here's how you choose a therapist. Super easy, okay? You go to your insurance website, if you have insurance, and you find a list of therapists, and you ask yourself, do I respond better to women or men? I respond better to women. So I wanted to choose a woman. But I don't want to have sex with this person or have emotional, because if you're having emotional attraction towards your therapist, it can shade the truth that you tell, which is not the point. The point is to be completely open and honest and fearless with this person. Every time there's that resistance of, I shouldn't tell this person this, I would run through that barrier and tell them exactly what was going on. Um, You know, the first time I ever admitted that, like, I lived with this deep, dark secret. I had this horrible, deep, dark secret that nobody knew that I could never admit to anyone. And I admitted it to my best friend in 2014 after the divorce, and it was, I don't feel worthy of love. And like looking back, <laughs> if I went back to 2012 me and said, you'd be saying this on a podcast and laughing about it, that person would be horrified. But to me, it's so laughable because it's such a common feeling. And I don't want to belittle any feelings that you have around that that sentiment because it's very common. And especially with codependence, um, especially the adult children of alcoholics, uh, it, 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 codependency is a very serious issue that that Eats at your self esteem and attracts narcissists. Why do you why do you date people who treat you poorly? Well, it's because you love it, and yourself your subconscious is trying to attract that person, uh, so you can overcome the wound of your childhood. Then and, and you need to deal with your inner child and all that stuff. And uh, you know, so but I didn't have an awareness of any of that, and so I go into the therapy session, and so I pick like an older lady, and she's still. A person that I love dearly, I see her every once in a while. I, as I said last episode, I was having some trouble, kind of working through some stuff. And this is a trusted person who knows my whole story that I can go sit in a room with and just talk things out. And, you know, they start asking you, "Tell me about your childhood. Uh, tell me about all the bad things that happened to you. Tell me," and then and then you start working through your your life story and all the things that were really tough. And there are definitely tough days to it. I, I remember one day, for, for instance, uh, I mean, I just remember going home drained in those early days of therapy. I was going like twice a week for almost a year. That's how messed up I was. Um, and and so you tell your life story and you are, you are having this stuff drawn out because what happens is when you have a traumatic experience and you don't deal with it, you pack it into what is called your lizard brain. And what that does is that, Poison essentially then affects your thinking, and it affects your unconscious decision making. And so, when you go to talk therapy and you talk out what these things what happened, uh, I would be sitting there telling her things about things that happened 15 years previously, and I was experiencing the emotions as if they were happening at that at that moment in time, Uh, and it was really unpleasant for those few moments. But then, after you get through those first few moments, you feel this amazing weight lifted off of you, and you just feel better like um like you have a great workout and you just have that great feeling that's how you usually feel when you leave the therapist office, you know or after a a great orgasm. Or a great poop. Like it's just it's it's one of life's best feelings is going uh, to therapy and like getting things off your chest and talking it out because we are we are meant to tell our stories. And when we tell our stories, we and we are not judged for them by this person that we're telling them to. In fact, we receive encouragement. It makes it okay, And then you start telling some of your trusted friends and. uh, You know. A person in chat just says, I don't want to take therapy because 50 years of crap would take too long to recover from. That's resistance. That's the kind of resistance I'm talking about. It doesn't take as long as you think. Like, all those preconceived notions that you have about therapy, you have to set aside. And you just have to go do it. Uh, So, what do you do if you don't have insurance? I don't know. I'm fortunate to have insurance. I think uh, every church has something called Stephen Ministers. And a lot of churches will have uh, therapists. And and let me say this about therapists. I've had several. I have a great one now. Uh, It's like dating. You don't have chemistry with every single one, so just keep going and keep trying them out until you find somebody that you click with. Uh, I remember going in in high school and spending 10 weeks talking to this guy who just was the worst. He didn't help at all. Uh, But I was also very resistant to the benefits of, of what I was doing. Um, but Stephen ministers, uh, even though it is at a church, um, you can say to the person who's organizing, like, listen, I'm not a religious person. I just don't have insurance. I'm not looking for a lot of Jesus talk. I'm just looking for someone to kind of talk, talk things through. They can help. Um, or sometimes, there are charities who will fund therapy, or or therapists themselves will give you a, a greatly discounted rate because they make such a killing. Like mine makes like two hundred dollars a session, <laughs> you know. So they'll give you a discounted rate. That's the thing about any kind of uh, any kind of care industry. Don't not go because you can't afford it because of insurance because they know what the structure is and they know that there are people that need their services and they're willing to cut you a big discount. And I can tell you that it uh, universities sometimes will have discounts. Uh, thank you, Jackie. Uh you know, even if it's a younger newer therapist looking for training, it's still it's like going to the dental school. Still is going to work. Uh still going to be good at pulling your tooth. Uh so you for for me like getting a personal trainer I knew that I was going to hurt myself if I squatted if I didn't have somebody teaching me how to do it and so I paid a lot of money uh and and I cut in other areas to benefit my physical health because I knew if I do this for 1 year and pay this money then the rest of my life will be impacted in a positive way and it's the same with therapy 1 year of therapy and you're going to understand your thought processes now, I'm not going to tell you that um, I don't have a lot of the same thoughts, but when I have those thoughts, I am able to go, okay, that's just thinking, thinking, that's bad thinking, that is insecurity, and we don't, we're not going to deal with this junk. You know, it's, uh, you're able to step out from your thoughts and kind of examine them like a third party would and say, this is, this is irrational, we're not doing this, you're going to go to the gym. Or you're gonna stop this tantrum, <laughs> you know you you have the ability to really like work through your thoughts. Um, one other thing I wanted to say about depression uh, is I know I have a lot of younger listeners. the the mid twenties are probably the m- loneliest time in your life, and if you have somebody who that you're related to that's in college and they just got out of college. Make sure you're inviting them over for family dinner or you're checking up on them um, because you're in this amazing experience where you're surrounded by people and you have purpose in school and friendships. And then you get home and you're living with your parents again and you're barely able to find a job and you don't know what you're doing with your life and you're making $25,000 a year. Like, it, you go from the top of the mountain to the valley real quick, and you don't necessarily have the tools to deal with it like a 34 or a 44 or 54 year old would. Uh, so, I just wanted to say that if you know somebody who's in college or is just getting out of college who is in that 23 to 26, 27 age range, like check up on them. You know, if you're a parent, invite them over for an extra dinner a month and just make sure that you're reaching out to them because even if they're not suicidal, even if they're not depressed. Uh, It is a very lonely time. Um, So uh, self-care. So how do you lift yourself out of it? So if you're a person that I'm talking about, if you're a person who's dealing with, uh, it's not just therapy, okay? There are a lot of things that you have to do. Self-esteem is the antivirus software of the mind. Like, it it protects you. You have to, like, what I'm suffering from right now is a hit to my self-esteem. And I'm dealing with some self-esteem issues. Uh, I'm a very confident person, especially when I have demonstrated abilities in something. Like, I did some prep for this, but I did 30 minutes of prep. You know, I've been thinking about it all day, but I know that I can sit down behind this microphone and I can talk because I have demonstrated ability at it. Uh, So, I'm a very confident person in a lot of ways, But there are times where there are parts of your life that you don't feel great about, and then you let that eat away at the rest of your self worth. So, even if you are physically in the best shape of your life and spiritually in a good place, or uh, emotionally, all in all, is pretty good, or financially, you're making a good living. Like, I'll be honest, um, I don't like at 34, and I know everybody says, oh, you're still young to have kids and a family and all that. Like at 34, and not a lot of you know, I go on on dates, but it's not a lot of people at this point. Uh, I don't know. I'm just kind of not interested in dating, so it's my own fault. But you kind of go, ah, man, what if I'm going to be single forever? What if I'm never going to have kids? What if I'm never going to have that experience? That's something that I want. Um, wh- uh, you know, what if I what if I am single for the rest of my life and die alone? Well, then you stop and you go. You know that's not true. <laughs> a, you're a guy and you can have kids for a long time. B, you you could have you could go out on dates tomorrow if you really tried. Like you have you have to like sit there and go, "Oh, I'm feeling pity for myself." You have to like stop and remind yourself of the truth. But in the middle of wedding season as a single person, it kind of sucks going to weddings because you're around friends and family and they have great relationships and they have kids and you're uh, and you get a little jealous. You kind of go, I, you know, what's wrong with me that I don't have that? Like, and then you see your cousin who's a complete loser who is white trash and then they're happily married and you're just like, okay, this loser has a wife and I don't like what's wrong with me? Like, so you start playing that comparison game and, and you get to a place where you just go, okay, all the, all the rest of my life is amazing, but this one piece sucks. So I'm going to let myself spiral. Um, uh, Christy says, be like me and don't get invited to weddings. Um, <laughs> I try so hard, but damn it, I'm fun at parties. I can't help it. Um, so it's very easy to let yourself spiral. And then that doubt becomes a, a mental cancer that starts eating away at, mm, do you really earn a good living? Mm, is your podcast really doing well? Is this that like you start really picking on yourself and it can spiral pretty quickly? Um, so to avoid getting to a place where, like I said, where I sit there and I go, I should just kill myself, uh, I that's when I know, uh oh, that's a problem. I get there rarely, if ever, at this point. That was the first time since 2016. 2016 was probably the worst bout of depression and suicide that I've dealt with aside from my high school years to the point that I wrote a suicide note and writing the suicide note was the thing that it pretty much sealed for me the, that I will never commit suicide uh, because when you see on paper and I got five people in how many people love you and how many people rely on you and how many people would miss you and how much you would hurt those people Uh I think every person has that little ray where you go, but what about them? And then you either squash it or you dwell on it. And I would say dwell on it because if you can get your brain to think about the funeral and how miserable everyone will be because of your decision, it really fixes your thinking in a in a profound way. And uh, I'm going to say this without, I'm going to choke up. I've been doing well. I'm an emotional person as is. Um, uh, the presence of my nieces in my life has been profoundly important and, uh, you know, I, I think you have to maybe pick one person and go, I could never do that to them. And, you know, I could never do that to my mom. I could never do that to my dad. I could never do that to my nieces or my brother or sister. Um, You know, and that you have to use that to propel yourself out of it Um, and you have to immediately, uh, you have to have a plan. And so when you hit rock bottom like that, you have to have friends that you can call. Like I, I hit rock bottom about a week and a half ago and I immediately messaged Harry and Jeremiah Morrill and a couple other people and they may not be aware that they're my support system but or that when i'm losing my mind that i am messaging them but somebody's going to respond and talk me down and remind me of my worth and uh and, and it's not often that explicit it's like i'm having a real problem with this and they, your friends know you well enough to go, this isn't a re, this isn't reality. Like you're thinking things that aren't true. And I immediately scheduled a therapy appointment and, um, went to therapy that day and that night made sure that I relaxed and rested a little bit and did something that was mindless like play Mario Kart on the 64. And the next day went to the gym to make, and worked out hard and did a lot of cardio to get serotonin and my brain chemicals up and ate well the next day. And because it, it it is it is like when you get stuck in the mud, you've got to do certain things to propel yourself out of the mud and you've got to go, 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 go because if you get stuck in that mud or ice, you're there and you can get stuck again and you can get stuck worse. And so when you hit that board, you've got to move yourself forward quickly and not dwell on anything and not allow yourself to have those bad thoughts. I will literally sometimes catch myself going, shh, <laughs> Like a crazy person, because when the thoughts start spiraling in my mind and this tape gets going, I just cut myself off and go Psh, like a nut job. <clears throat> and that audible sh stops that thinking immediately because it makes me realize like, oh, OK, I'm doing it Um, now that used to happen a lot. It happens almost never. Because I do things like this list here, I think self care, regular, regular self care is extremely important. And it's getting exercise, uh, getting sunlight and vitamin D, uh, getting good sleep, going to therapy, reading books um, that nurture your mental, emotional, and spiritual life, meeting friends and family face to face, not online, face to face. Eating nutritious foods, taking your vitamins, attending a religious service. Um, I would say volunteering fits into that. Journaling, getting those thoughts out and putting them on paper. You know, journaling really helps you kind of get the things out of your head and work them out a little bit as you write it out. And I think the most important lesson, uh, and this is, you know, um, my a friend, Lindsay, told me once, she's like, be your best friend. Be your own best friend. And I was like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Like, I'm a man. I'm not going to be, be my own best friend. But the more I thought about it, God, it's so true. Like, I would never, I would never talk, you know, I don't, I don't talk badly about myself anymore. You know, I had an an ex-girlfriend say one time, she's like, I, you're kind of self-deprecating, but I've never heard you say anything bad about yourself and it's true. And I used to do it all the time. I'd put myself down, not in a funny, joking, lighthearted way, like in a serious way. Like, I'm just a dumb person. You know, like I didn't think I was intelligent until 2015. And that is not a joke. I thought I was a dumb person until 2015. Now, like, I wish I should I, maybe humility should call me back to that. But like you you say things about yourself that you would never say about a friend or family member. And you should never do that. You should never talk about yourself the way that you talk uh, about others. You know, and and if you would, <laughs> maybe you should think about how you talk to others. But that has been incredibly important. And when I have bad thoughts about myself, I literally stop myself and say that that thought is not allowed here. And eventually, after a, a, a couple months, two, three, four, five months all that negative self-talk goes away and it and it I don't even think about it anymore like those thoughts just aren't there and if they do pop up in times of stress I know how to deal with it and I just go listen we're not I'm not doing that I'm not going to talk I'm not going to think that about myself I'm not going to talk about myself that way like you have to have a very realistic view of who you are and your strengths and weaknesses you know sometimes people will become Kanye West to overcompensate for uh some of those those lower moments. Um, but like when you think bad thoughts about yourself, you just have to stop yourself and you have to say that that's just not allowed here. You know, it's like pornography in your house. If you're against pornography, you're not going to let DVDs into your house until your son turns 18 or 15. <laughs> DVDs, lol. <clears throat> but you know what I'm saying. Um, so, you have to have, uh, for me, I have to be consistent in my self-care. Like, right now, I'm eating like garbage, and I'm not going to the gym, and I know what happens, and if I don't if I don't go every, th- you know, I, after three days, I start to get twitchy, and uh, it's been three days, and I'm getting a little bummed, and it's like, why am I so sad today? It's like, because you had a double quarter pounder for dinner last night, and all that salt and... Like you need a salad. Like you, your brain needs some vitamins and minerals. Like it's just really important. Your physical life really matters a lot in your mental life. Um. So, so I would say that I spent ninety percent of my time in my twenties in a depressive state, and I would say that when I do self care properly, I'm it's around ten percent. When I say do self care properly, I mean like do one of those things a day, like um. You know, for me, this is almost like journaling. So, like, this is my thing. And tomorrow, it will be going to the gym. Um, you know, and if I and, and if I can get one of those wins a day where I've done like one good thing to take care of myself, then I go, okay, good. You know, like, you you have to just do stuff every day. You don't have to do everything. You just have to start at one place and start moving forward. Um. So. So I I, I just. You know, from a personal standpoint, I also want to introduce you to the six pillars of self-esteem before we kind of wrap up the self-help portion of this. Uh, the six pillars of self-esteem is by Nathaniel Brandon, uh, and it's a great book from 1995. Uh, the six pillars of self-esteem are the practice of living self uh, the practice of living consciously. The Practice of Self-Acceptance, The Practice of Self-Responsibility, The Practice of Self-Assertiveness, and The Practice of Living Purposefully, and The Practice of Personal Integrity. And, uh, you know, this book really gave me a good framework as to what healthy self-esteem looked like, because I didn't know. You know, if you're not modeled that, you know, in our culture today, even if you had good parents, like, it's easy to kind of get lost and forget what good self-esteem is. Like, you think it's Kanye West, and you're bragging about yourself, and man, I look great on Instagram. Well, that's not healthy self-esteem. Like what is real self-esteem? Um so you know, living consciously is just being present in the moment, not focusing on the past, not focusing too much on the future, um bring awareness to yourself so you're aware of your insecurities, you're aware of your priorities, and you're aware of the moment because every moment is a choice to make. Those different choices, uh, self-acceptance is kind of self-explanatory. You know, accepting that you are the way you are, and you can't beat yourself up for who you are or aren't. Uh, self-responsibility um, to be responsible in the context is to be responsible not as the recipient of moral blame or guilt, but responsible as the chief caus- causal agent in my life and behavior. So this is a very libertarian thing. Uh, you are self, you are responsible for your actions. Uh, We spend a lot of time on this in the libertarian world. You're responsible for your actions. We spend a lot of time talking about it. Maybe not a lot of time actually doing it. Self-assertiveness is to live authentically, to speak and act from innermost convictions and feelings as a way of life and as a rule. I'll get to that in a moment. Uh, Living purposefully. Do you wake up with goals? Do you have a a direction? Um, Talking to a friend today about unhappiness in their work situation. And, you know, I have been miserable at work in the past, and it's because I had given over my power to those people. Like, obviously, your boss has some power over whether or not they pay you. But your job, your boss, your authority figure is not the ultimate arbiter of where your career goes or how it ends. Like, I am the, I am the one who decides how my career goes, so I wake up every day working hard because I want my career to go well at my job. And if I didn't like my job, I would leave that job and I would do this full time. You know, for me, taking over the power of my own career and where I wanted my skill set to go was incredibly empowering to me and gave me a tremendous amount of self-esteem. And uh, just the, the Patreon, firing up Patreon and getting a thousand a month within less than a month was... Like, wow, okay, like that was empowering for this because I'm doing something right. Um, You know, uh, going back to um, self-assertiveness, you know, part of that for me was learning to be vulnerable. Um, You know, part of my skill set is being open and vulnerable with you and, and talking about my life in a way that you connect with. And I'm not afraid of it. I'm not afraid that when people hear this, they're going to think that I'm a broken toy. Oh my God, he wanted to kill himself at some point in the past. He was, I'm comfortable saying this in front of thousands of people because I know who I am. And having been in the public sphere for 15 years working in politics and media, there are a lot of people who say a lot of things about you. And uh, I haven't gotten it as bad as many because I try to be, you know, I'm not a hack who's trying to inflame. I'm I'm trying to reason things out in public. But there are a lot of people who think and say things about you that aren't true. And you have to stop and you have to go, okay, this person, even if it's your mother, this person said this about me. Is this true about myself? Now, you have to have spent some time thinking about who you are and what you believe and how you act and what your behavior is and how you think about things and what's your character. And you have to, so somebody says to me, like it's like when uh, the guy online called me a racist. It's like, it, it annoys me, and I have a, an emotional reaction to it, but does it r- impact me at all? No. Uh, because I know I'm not a racist. I know my values. I know my character. And so he may have that perception, but I can't control his perception of me. I can just be me, and I, I deal with how people receive information coming from my Facebook or from this podcast or from any media place that I publish media, like just, I I can't control their reaction to me. I can just control my reaction to their reaction. Um, and, uh, part of self care is like, I, I always, I think there's like a self esteem force field. There's like shields, like on the enterprise. So, you know, when like the shields get lower, 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 and then, uh, you know, the enterprise gets hit and it rocks the set a whole lot more. (laughs) Like, that's how self-esteem is in your life. Like, when you're lower in self-esteem, you take things a lot more defensively and more personal. Like, no wonder Donald Trump's so defensive all the time. It's because he's just taking massive ego wounds every single day. Every time he opens his Twitter, it's just another person calling him filth and awful and blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, and so I think he clings more and more to the positive stuff about him, and that has become his primary value. It may have always been that way, but I think being president has made that even worse because it's like the criticism has his shield so low. So, if you ever watch me, like I get a little more prickly <laughs> and a little more uh, grumpy when my when I am stressed. And I am worried and I am not taking care of myself and I am not sleeping and I'm not uh, doing good things for myself. I, I am pricklier towards people who I assume are attacking me. Right now, I feel great. So, like, I can go online and somebody can say something, even if it's mean, and I can just hit the haha button on it. You know what I mean? Like, but in two weeks, if I'm stressed, then I may not have that same reaction. So, um, so. I will put a PDF outline of this, and I will put links to this book and others in there. Um, so uh, th- that that I think is for me. Give me just a second. I'm gonna take a drink. I, I apologize. <sighs> Got to make sure the uh, the throat is moist. Um. So, those are if you deal with this stuff. Um, I want to read you. So, what do you do if you live? So, so, so listen. Bottom line, I'll say that for the end. Uh, so that that's if you deal with this stuff. So, what if you live with someone who is dealing with this stuff? You have a friend. Their behavior has changed. Uh, they have become more withdrawn. They have become grumpier. They have become more angry, or they're acting out sexually, uh, or they're drinking more. Because, like, I look at alcoholism. Uh, Alcoholism is a symptom of low self-worth and trauma that has not been dealt with. Or a person who is not taking care of themselves. Uh, A person who... um, People, especially in their early 20s who act out sexually and have a lot of sexual partners, dealt with sexual trauma that they they haven't wanted to tackle yet. you know And not saying that's everybody and I know that's very on, on PC or whatever, but that's what the literature says. Um, it's a coping mechanism. I'm going I lost control of my sexual um, desire I, I lost control of my sexuality. Because someone took that from me, so I'm now going to master it and control it. And, uh, you know, I, I haven't dealt with this issue. I don't want to feel these feelings anymore, so I'm going to dull them. And that's the thing about trauma is that it's, it's going to come out in a healthy way or an unhealthy way. And so you, you have to make a choice, and I hope that you make the right choice. Uh, my therapist introduced me to the cycle of abuse of self and others, uh, that I felt was really helpful in helping me kind of determine, and so essentially, like draw a circle and then cut that into quarters. So you know, like you're a pizza drawing, you know, horizontally and vertically, and and then in that first quadrant, draw three lines out. And in that first quadrant, it's it's that traumatic event that that triggers a buildup of pain and wherever there's pain, there's anger because you're, you're trying to protect your ego. Um, anger is really just about protecting, it's your mind protecting yourself from a perceived threat. Uh, and so what you do is you list out those traumatic events and you kind of write out like, here's all the things that really cause pain and like, okay, what is a traumatic event? Well, it's the thing that popped into your mind when I mentioned that it's, it's, child abuse or sexual violence or domestic abuse or a parent's divorce or a parent abandonment or a spousal abandonment. It's, it's you know, just download a list of tra- traumatic events and then go through it. Um, and in the, in the next quadrant, you begin to show little or no emotion and you push others away and seek isolationism. So you list the ways that you push people away. For me, it is being overly sarcastic. And those barbs can get a little sharp. Uh, it is not responding to text messages. Uh, for some people it's uh, for me, it's not initiating conversation with people. Uh, I'm usually the one that initiates conversation. I'm very social. Um, you know so I have those ways. So at the bottom at the six o'clock point, that's where your pity sets in. After you've isolated you you pity yourself. You sit there and think about um, I'm alone this isn't how my life should be my life should be this way and you fantasize about it you start to pity yourself and then in that next quadrant you start acting out for temporary relief and it's acts of self abuse so how do you how do you relieve yourself how do you cope in unhealthy ways with that trauma that isolation and that pity um for me it's overeating it's it's you know i if i've had a stressful hard day i feel the urge to go to cracker barrel and eat a lot of carbs Uh, it's, or or not go to the gym and not take care of myself physically, uh, for, uh, for, for some people that may be drinking or overusing drugs or using drugs at all or sexual behaviors. Um, you list out in like sun rays on the, out from that circle, all the ways that you punish yourself. And then you get into the next quadrant, which is pretending normal. And you have guilt and fear of being exposed or found out. You list ways that you aggressively protect your ego and disconnect from life and loved ones. So you are just in this victim stance where you're reacting to life and you are constantly just, just, just like you're like Donald Trump. You're just like constantly jabbing at perceived threats And then because you're acting stupid and you're dealing with things in an unhealthy way and you're abusing yourself, then another traumatic event happens. And then it just starts compounding itself. And the goal is to really lift yourself out of that circle at any given time. Um, So I I hope that this has helped if you are a person who struggles with some of this or just even if you're not a depressed person, hopefully some of the stuff that I've learned over the last few years, kind of helps you. Uh, if you are living with a loved one who is uh, dealing with depression, 54% of those people that committed suicide in that CDC study, 54% said that they had no idea that their loved one was about to commit suicide. And that's the thing about depression is that you're really, you get really good at acting normal and hiding it uh, because you don't want anybody to think that there's anything wrong with you. Because if people think that you're sick or weird or depressed or off, then nobody's going to want to to help you, and nobody's going to want to take you seriously, and that, that'll just push them away from you because you're even more disgusting because you're depressed. Uh, so th- and that's that isolation is just so dangerous. Um, there's a great article that I will put in the show notes called, Posting a Hotline Number Isn't Enough, Break Down Doors to Prevent Suicide. Um I won't read the whole article, but it's really, really good, and it's about a woman who uh, went through suicidal ideation and depression. And she talks about uh, the stages that she went through, and she, you know, she 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 makes a point that I make often, which is when you ask somebody how they are, you really don't want them to tell you the truth and you don't want to tell them the truth. You run into somebody and you say, how are you doing? Good. You really don't want them to say anything other than good, and you don't want to say anything other than good, right? Like, because, uh, I don't know if I can handle all of that vulnerability. I don't know if I can handle all of that uh, real connection. Um, so she writes, when we ask others how they're doing, We don't really want to know. We prize individuality and privacy. More than that, we prize success. Despair and mental illness don't square with success. The desperately unhappy feign wellness. They don't want to admit to friends and family members that they have succumbed to the ultimate American sin of not being able to say I'm good. No doubt everyone who has posted an admonition to get help. Every reporter who added this National Suicide Prevention 800 number at the end of a news story is well-intentioned. But as a person who has called the hotline, I can tell you it isn't enough. Hotlines are a start, but you can and should hotlines are a start, but you can and should do a lot more. If you fear that someone in your life is depressed, make that call yourself, then make more calls. Get resources lined up, real resources like therapists and psychiatrists willing to work on a sliding scale. More importantly, be willing to intrude. Commit another American sin. Asking how they really are. Keep phoning. Invade personal space. If you are genuinely afraid of what someone might do, take that someone to the emergency room or call 911. A depressed person may well resist your efforts. Ignore protests. Sick people need help, and they are often unwilling to admit it. But they won't get any better on their own. It's very possible that the only reason I am here today is because of my friend and her crowbar. Don't be afraid to use a crowbar. More crucially, don't be afraid. And I wholeheartedly agree with that. I think, um, listen, people, when they are ready to make a difference, need to choose that they're ready to make that difference. Uh, you can't help, like, you can only encourage me to lose weight. You can't encourage me, uh, you can't, um, you can't eat a salad and hope that counts towards my calorie count. Like, I have to do the work. They have to do the work. But you can be there to help them, um, as, as I wrote at the end of my article the other day, if you love someone with depression, reaching out when you see behavioral changes is always appreciated, as is patience and empathy. Hurting people will sometimes vent their pain on the safest people in their life. Give them grace. Ultimately, they have to fix themselves, but knowing they are loved and supported is an important step to lifting out of depression. So, man, patience is just a lot of it, and not letting yourself go under too, because when you live with somebody who is depressed or is acting out, that takes a toll on you and you have to do good self-care to make sure that you are not slipping into depression yourself uh, because it's a real concern. Um, But she touched on society there and I want to talk a little bit about the societal structure that we live in and I think it plays an enormous part. So, like th- that was the personal tip session, session uh, section of the podcast, and then this is more about what kind of society we want to live in, and why are we seeing a spike in suicides, even in the famous, uh, you know, people like Anthony Bourdain. Here's a guy who has everything. Um, now, I think Bourdain is probably a victim of the de- the depleting serotonin that you have during age, and then also as a hard drug user. Um, But, you know, they make medicine for that. And uh, let me just say, you know, what is my personal feeling on suicide? It it is... I... I get it. Uh, I, (laughs) I understand the wanting to stop the cycle. But... To me, it is such a weak, pussy ass move to commit suicide. Like, I look at somebody like Anthony Bourdain and I'm mad at them. You know, I go, You could have been a symbol of light. And you were. You were the type of guy that was open about your struggles and helped people through their struggles and was a symbol of recovery for so many people. And then you gave up the fight. And made it okay for all those people that you helped to to commit the ultimate act of selfishness. Like, fuck you, man. <laughs> you know? And I know that we all love Tony Bourdain, and I, I loved his show and I loved his style and I appreciated his authenticity. But I get angry about it because I did the work. And uh, I just think it's so weak when somebody chooses the easy way out. And people want to romanticize suicide and they want to, oh, well, you know, we, as long as the government's not involved and, you know, it's, it's the ultimate act of bravery, taking a life, especially your own. It's like, no, you know, that's weak. That's weakness. Uh, the act of not reaching out to other people and keeping all of your internal feelings to yourself, to me, is weakness. And there's this idea, is, especially in manhood, that you don't talk about your feelings, and you don't talk about the things that you struggle with, because it's unmanly. I think that is the most cowardly bullshit I've ever heard in my life. I think that the idea that you are not to have a full emotional life if you're a man is ludicrous. Uh, it is, and I think that's why so many of us take it so personal, All these hit, all these hit pieces, Will Higgins at the Indianapolis Star. Jordan Peterson's coming here Friday. I'm going to see him. And Will Higgins at the Star wrote this piece of garbage article that lied about Jordan Peterson. And we get mad about it because here's a guy who is telling men that it's okay to be men. That you need to be a man. That you need to be open about your feelings. That you need to talk to other people. That you need to have the courage to stand up and say, I'm struggling with this. It is weakness to hide To to not say things that are hard is the opposite of manhood. It's boyhood. And if you are the type of person who is struggling with this, I don't care what your brain says. If your brain tells you nobody's going to care, it's wrong. And it is a lie. And believing lies is weakness. And... I just look at people who commit suicide and I, it makes me mad. I, there is definitely empathy and compassion there. I understand the struggle. But at the same time, I love a redemption story. You know, I, I am one. And I know that the work is not nearly as hard as people think it is. Like, that's the crazy thing. It was so easy to get healthy. It was so easy. Like there were hard moments, but by and large, it is so much easier because the better you get at self care, the better you get in general, and the easier things get. Uh, and uh, I, I don't know. I just get mad about it, and I know that's not a, a popular statement. We're all supposed to just pretend that Anthony Bourdain killing himself is somehow bravery, and that it is oh, we can we it's we must honor him now. It's like honor his work but don't glorify what he did. It's not a glorifying, it's not a thing to glorify. Um, uh, Life is about overcoming adversity. And part of humanity is about exemplifying the ability to overcome adversity so you can then demonstrate to other people hope. And I encourage you, if you're like me, be brave and tell your story. Uh, go out and post a status and say, you know, I, I've i dealt with these issues uh, and I don't want anybody to be, you know, that 10% spike in suicides after Robin Williams w- to prevent that people who didn't take the cowardly way out have to speak up and be honest and tell the people who are struggling with this right now that there's an alternative because nobody wants to do that. Nobody wants to stand up and be courageous And that is the problem with our society in general, is everybody's a fucking coward. Everybody is a little baby. Nobody wants to answer, "Eh, I'm not doing well. Good. You know, um, I, I really like Bill Weld, but I don't want to say it. And I'm not saying that I do. I'm saying, like, I'm a Bill Weld supporter, and I just think it's terrible the way that they're treated. But I don't want to say anything online, because I don't want to be attacked. Grow a pair of fucking balls. You know, I, because here, here's the, the cost. Okay, so this article comes out in the Washington Post. Uh, it's this uh, professor of sociology and director of women, gender, and sexuality studies at Northeastern University. Um, Washington Post actually printed this on June 8th. Why can't we hate men? It's not that Eric Schneiderman, the now New York former Attorney General, pushed me over the edge. My edge has been crossed for a long time. Before President Trump, before Weinstein, before mansplaining, before incels. Before live streaming sexual assaults and red pill men groups and rape, campuses, rape camps as a tool of war. And the deadening of banality of male prerogative. Um, listen, all that's terrible. Uh, these men's rights groups... It, it it is a it is a doorway to bigotry there's no other way to put it i've been in some of those groups like it's like the uh th- that's what everybody warned about the pepe the frog stuff like obviously pepe is a meme and calm the fuck down but i saw people go from you know i'm just making jew jokes to be funny to a year later like man these jews are really <laughs> like okay well the the whole there there's definitely an element of people who use ah oh, I'm just against PC culture, so that they can then begin saying racist shit. You know none of that's right, but this isn't right either. What this woman says, um, uh, let let me. Okay, let me just go to the end because I I I have to. I've done a show about killing yourself i I can't i can't drive all of the listeners away so in this moment here in the land of legislated, legitimated toxic masculinity is it really so illogical to hate men for all the power of me too and time's up and the women's marches only a relatively few men have been called to task and i've yet to see a mass wave of prosecutions or even serious recognition of wrongdoing on the contrary cries of witch hunt and the plotted resurrection of celebrity offenders came quick on the heels of the outcry over the endemic sexual harassment and violence. But we're not supposed to hate them because not all men, hashtag. I love Michelle Obama as much as the next woman, but when they have gone low for all of human history, maybe it's time for us to go all Thelma and Louise and Foxy Brown over their collective butts. The world has a little place for feminist anger. Uh, Really? Women are supposed to support, not condemn, offer succor, not dismissal. We're supposed to feel more empathy for your fear of being called a harasser than we were for the women being harassed. We are told with us and hashtag not him, but truly, if he were with us, wouldn't this have all ended a long time ago? If he were really with us, wouldn't he reckon that one good way to change structural violence and inequality would be to refuse the power that comes with it? So men, if you are really hashtag with us and would like us to not hate you for all of a millennial uh, mu- for all the millennia of woe you have produced and benefited from start with this. Lean out so we can actually just stand up without being beaten down. Pledge to vote for feminist women only. Don't run for office. Don't be in charge of anything. Stay away from power. We got this. And please know that your crocodile tears won't be wiped away by us anymore. We have every right to hate you. You have done us wrong because hashtag patriarchy. It is long past time to play hard for team feminism and win. This, if I replaced women with men or men for black, would be incredibly offensive. But because the tailwind of culture is with her, she can have that published in the Washington Post. What that is is a piece of bigotry. That is a person who has uh, seriously demented views. That your penis means that you are no longer qualified to be a member of this society. You are to just sit down and be quiet. That it's a millennia of woe. America is the country, like. Jonah Goldberg makes this point in his book, "The Suicide of the West," that Western culture and America specifically it, it, it's not it's not abnormal that we had slavery. It is abnormal that we ended slavery. It is not abnormal that we didn't allow women to vote. It is abnormal in the scope of human history that women now have a al- have the uh, ability to be full participants in society. When you look at the past ten thousands of years of recorded human history, and the records of fossils that we have before that, we live in an extraordinary society. Are there problems? Absolutely. But to say to men that uh, you don't run, don't be uh, in charge of companies, don't run for office, don't talk. Just sit down and shut up. Men aren't allowed to talk. Like, that's the same argument that misogynists made a hundred years ago to keep women from getting the vote. Like, what's the difference between this woman and the the uh, Southern senator who was fighting against women having suffrage? Like, this is not a person, this Susanna Danuta Walters is not a person who, who cares about equality. This is a person who advocates for subjugation that's the exact thing that many of us are are fighting against y- y- you know you 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 wonder why young men are teenage men are the ones killing themselves at the like this is the kind of thing that people are are advocating for like if it was harmful for young women to hear, you can't be president, then don't you think that logic extends to young men too? That you're not allowed to be a full participant in society because of your sexual organ? I just I look at this and it's hard to craft an opinion opinion about this because you don't want to get lumped with the Richard Spencers of the world and the Mennonists. And it feels uncomfortable saying any of this because there are legitimate structural issues in the way that women are treated in our society. But I want to fix those, but I also don't want to tell young men to sit down and shut up that because men 150 years ago felt that rape was okay, or the president in the 90s felt that rape was okay, Uh, the Democratic president, by the way, that she probably voted for, was rape was okay, that the young man who is 13, who is going to grow up in a completely different society that treats women in a much better way than even my generation did, isn't allowed to have an opinion? I, I, I just... I don't get it like and this kind of bigotry is published by the Washington Post a mainstream news outlet and then when uh, someone like Jordan Peterson goes out and says this isn't okay look at what look at how he's treated It, it just it's so I've been reading this book called the Benedict Option uh, by a guy named Rob, uh, Rob Dreyer, I think he writes for the American Conservative. He's a very uh, Catholic writer, <laughs> very conservative. Uh, we disagree on a lot of politi- on a lot of policies as libertarians with Rob Dreyer, but this book I felt was very interesting um, because he's talking about the culture at large, and of course, being a Christian conservative writer, he's bemoaning that the gays can marry now. <laughs> Okay, whatever. Um, But he makes the point that Christianity thrived in times where it wasn't the predominant prevailing uh, culture. Like, it it atrophied the last hundred years as the Christian church tried to force itself onto society. It atrophied because people are being forced. But when when it's a choice and you have to persuade people, then it thrives. Isn't that weird? Isn't that exactly what libertarians say about just about everything? That when you force people to do something, they don't want to do it and they don't like it. But when you persuade people, all of the sudden, they're more interested in doing what ben- ben- benefits them. Um, and basically the theory of the book is that the future is small tribes. That, you know, St. Benedict was someone who... Grew up in, I think, Italy, and dreamed of being in the Roman Catholic Church. And then he went to Rome in the middle of, you know, the barbarian sacks. And he couldn't believe how uh, gross and sinful even the Catholic Church was in Rome. And the and so what he did is he founded this order. He he set himself apart from the culture and created. Uh, he lived in a cave, and then he started a monastery. And he set himself apart, and ultimately these little conclaves of people uh, got wisdom and knowledge from the ancients through the Dark Ages, that the, the governments and the large overarching institutions like the Catholic Church in the Dark Ages um, actively tried to destroy knowledge, but they wouldn't destroy them in these little conclaves of, of monks, And so what he advocates is that, listen, stop trying to force everybody to live your cultural values. Basically, he's saying to Christians, like, stop trying to force gay people to live the way you want. Like, just go live in your little community and be satisfied that you can live in your community in peace. Because if you go out and start fighting with other people, then you see, you know, it's like the gay cakes case. Then all of a sudden, two guys feel that they have the right to start forcing you to violate your Christian beliefs because you your your side of the culture, maybe not this guy specifically, but your side of the culture tried to keep them from being full participants in society and I found that to be kind of interesting and I think it it kind of jives well it does jive with libertarianism and I think as technology starts to blossom, we're going to we're going to still continue to be tribalist and this is the problem. Like this whole tribalism discuss. It's like all of a sudden everybody's talking about tribalism, as if somehow we've not always been tribal. Like, do you think that in the '30s that Mussolini and Hitler weren't using tribalism? Uh, that we that the whole concept of a Christian nation was developed in the '50s to try and fight communism, which was tribal in and of itself. It was just went by communism. You know, tribalism and nationalism, tribalism and fascism, tri- tribalism in. You know, democracies like America, the idea of not kneeling for the flag and make sure you stand up and be patriotic, that in and of itself is a tribal impulse. And the problem is that instead of just realizing that we are tribal people and we try to force big overarching city states to represent all of the people, we should just allow people to be tribal in their local areas and in their own groups. And this was the whole point of the founding is that you had 50 labs of democracy where people could be tribal on a smaller, on a smaller scale and the federal government wouldn't have that power. And so you had the freedom to move to a different state. If you're pro-life, you didn't, you didn't have to live in Illinois. You can move to Indiana and be in a pro-life state and it could reflect your values. And libertarians take that even one step further. Uh, it, it's all about your local area. And it's not even about government because the government is there. If the government is there, it's very, very small and does very few things. And everything else is held is handled in that tribal uh, community. You know, and that's sort of what we talked about in the last episode where you had all these groups like the Rotarians and... Jewish groups and Muslim groups and Christian groups and the Salvation Army and the Lions Club and atheist groups and, you know, even all the way to the Klan, where you had all these tribalist groups where people banded together and they, you know, yes, there was arguments, but they they tried to improve society without using taxpayer money to change society for their views. And then Woodrow Wilson and FDR come along and completely change it and say, no, the tribe is the nation. The tribe is the United States of the government, the United States of, of America. And everybody needs to live by these values. And then all hell breaks loose. You know, and so people in the, in the middle of the 20th century retreat into religion in America, largely. Well, now that's gone. And so what's the tribes? <laughs> like, like we said... If I wanted to make friends, and I'm not a religious person, and I'm not a political person, how would you tell them to make friends? Uh, join a gaming group. I don't like board games. Um, I don't know, man. <laughs> like, outside of the internet, it's really hard. Uh, I think that's a really big problem. and And capitalism gets blamed, but capitalism is not to blame. Capitalism is inherently cooperative like you have to cooperate with people for capitalism to even work it's the divisions within government that have created the isolation because it creates very defined groups like the first thing people report on is politics right and people arguing over politics it's part of the as Jed weiss talked about in a lines of liberty interview it's part of the problem with the libertarian party and why it sucks is there's all these different strains of libertarianism and all these different libertarian groups, and they all kind of, even if they don't talk to each other, like Cato and Mises, for instance, they don't, they, there's no arguments. They just kind of leave each other alone, and they just kind of are parallel organizations. But once you get the people who side with one of those two groups into the Libertarian Party, and those 17 groups have to start voting on things, that's when things get violent, Maybe not physically violent, but who the hell wants to be in the Libertarian Party anymore because of the infighting? It's when you are using the vote that things start to go sideways, right? So the, the, the use of the government to do so many more things that a society can do cooperatively without the use of force uh, and, and the sucking up of resources and money through things like taxation and inflation, it, it makes us a more contentious society. And so you have the alienation of a lack of social groups, and then you pour the social media on top of that. Like, you remember the early days of social media, like, all oh, these kids, <laughs> so not good. They're not going out and playing. And we all were like, ah, oh, shut up, boomer. I can't believe I'm about, I'm about to say this. I think maybe the boomers were right. No, I'm, I'm, I'm okay. I about threw up when I said it, but maybe the lack of importance on socializing with each other has not been good for us as a society, and maybe all the old people warning us about that in the 90s were right. I need a minute I just said boomers might be right I don't know what's happening to me either but social media is not structured for connection it turns out (laughs) like it's good for collecting contacts and it's good for like uh, so so I've always recommended this book um uh, mate, uh, it's by Jeffrey Miller with a G and Tucker Max, and it's not one of these bro pickup books. Okay, it's it's if like if you're bad with women, like I was, uh, I read I listened to their podcast called The Mating Grounds, and uh, I've read their book and it's really good. So like if you're bad in dating, like if you're a woman and uh, you're bad in dating, you this book would help you too, or that podcast, The Mating Grounds. And Jeffrey Miller is a really funny uh, Twitter follow. He's a libertarian. He is a uh, an author and, a, and an evolutionary psychologist. And so they basically talk about the elements of attraction in this book and, and how to make yourself attractive. It's not how to pick up women by negging them and teasing them and treating them like garbage because that's what women really want and manipulating them. Like, that's not what it's about. It's about structuring your life to be attractive, and it turns out that being a healthy, normal person is attractive, because being an evolutionary psychologist, Jeffrey Miller surmises that everything is about sexual reproduction, right? So, everything you do is to make yourself look like an attractive sexual partner, because your genes are really good, so then, therefore, you will, you will spread good genes, right? And the species will be uh, improved, now, here, what are the elements of it? Uh, just to kind of pull from the book, the elements of sexual attraction and human attraction. The tender defender, so a man who is in touch with his, um, his empathetic side. So, you know, you want someone who can defend you, but you also want somebody who is tough. And I would say that this is definitely true in women, too. I mean, as a man, I want a woman who is tender and empathetic and caring and understanding, but also is a boss, and can put me in my place and can, you know, do it in an empathetic and healthy way, right? Uh, material proof. Money. How much material goods do you have to protect me and my offspring? Uh, that's why I think, you know, people put travel in their bio, for instance, is because they want to show they have a lot of expendable income to go travel, right? They're not living to paycheck to paycheck. They can take you to Costa Rica, Um Aesthetic proof, meaning fashion, right? Uh, this is one where I fall down woefully. Uh, but fashion signals intelligence, social ability, and resources, right? So you're you're showing off that you have a brain and that you can work with other people to to show off uh, your your mate ability, mental and emotional health. I, I don't. I think if anyone's been in a relationship with a controlling person, you understand why that's important. Uh, and especially if you want to raise children with somebody, you want somebody who is mentally and emotionally healthy intelligence. You want someone with the raw ability to, uh, strategize. Um, if, if you're, you know, in a Neanderthal tribe, a hundred thousand years ago, you want a mate who is going to have the intelligence to keep you two alive, right? Uh, willpower and conscientiousness. Can you, can you sit there and look and say, I'm depressed. I need to fix it. And then put a plan together and execute it. You know, so as trouble comes along in your relationship with somebody, is that person going to have the conscientiousness to examine themselves and then the willpower to fix it? Social proof. You listen to Tom Woods, why? Because someone else was talking about Tom Woods. And the more people that are talking about the Tom Woods show, the more social proof Tom Tom Woods has. And so if more people are talking about that person, then the ring around them go, well, this person must be someone to listen to because a lot of people are listening to them and talking about them. Um, romantic proof. Are you, are you uh, adept at dating? Um, and this displays intelligence and tenderness and emotional and mental health. Like if you were me in 2014 and pushing, 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 like, hey, I need you to be my girlfriend. Bruh, we went to Starbucks for two and a half hours. Like, no, 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 I need you to validate me. <laughs> not a lot of common sense there. And physical health, you know, are you physically attractive? You know, also it's, it's self-explanatory. You know, we always think about money and we always think about weight, but there's other elements too. And no, if you don't want to have kids, that's not what this is about. These are deep-set motivations in your genes based on 200,000 years of programming, okay, so these are things that you do to display certain qualities to other people, you know, the peacocking idea, why is the, why is, I have beautiful ducks outside my window, why are the male ducks beautiful with green heads and the female ducks are brown, it's because the males have to show more aesthetic proof to show better genetics, you know, as opposed to if they're mangy. You know, they they didn't consciously wake up one day and go, I need to grow beautiful green feathers. It just nature took care of it. Like these are natural impulses. And so what I think social media has done, it is it has taken the idea of attracting other people for whatever reason and put it on steroids. And so it's not about connecting with people. It's about attracting people. You're showing off how much money you have, or you're using social proof to show that you're popular and that you have a big podcast that everyone should listen to at WeareLibertarians.com, or you're intelligent, or you have willpower and conscientiousness, and you're displaying things uh, to get people to think a certain way about you. Now, obviously, some of that is its just its nature, right? You know, like, you got to live healthy. Like, if you're working out, it's not that you're working out. Uh, you're working out because you want to be healthy. But there's also an element of posting the selfie when you've lost 20 pounds, right? You know, I got a, I got a raise, so I got this new car. I'm just going to show everybody my new car. And I, so I think that... Social media has led us to a place with impulses that are not necessarily healthy. And so I think previous generations, like my grandfather's generation, focused on connecting. In high school, before social media, we focused on one, one-on-one connection. Uh, and I would say we spend... It's like that 10,000-hour rule that Malcolm Gladwell talks about, that if you want to be an expert in anything, do it for 10,000 hours like the amount of hours that you're practicing posting on social media to get other people attracted to you is so much higher than genuine real connection face-to-face with people and building relationships within a, within a tribe. You know, and that's why you, you take something even like the libertarian movement. It's not about... um, it It's not even about a discussion anymore within libertarian groups, right? It's not about like hey, I, I don't know that I, I agree with this doctrine on gun rights. I don't think that I agree that everyone should have a nuclear weapon. Can we have a conversation about this? Because I want to understand why you understand that. It's what you think of Ron Paul. <laughs> like, do you agree with the group or not? And the problem is you, you have so much drama in the LP leading up to a convention. Like, nobody knows what the truth is. Not that really people care, like, about the argument over whether Ron Paul was attending the convention or not. But if you really did want to know what happened or a situation there's some accusations of of, um, sexual misconduct amongst some of the candidates, like, who's going to get to the bottom of that? You know, like, I'm not going to get to the bottom of it. Because if I if if like it looks like now oh, this guy's really wrong, then the other side's just gonna cheer for me, and the other side's gonna turn on me. You know, like libertarian media is like any other media. We're just catering to you. I, I I'm pretty independent, and I get called a statist all the time. You know, I could just be like Eric July, who I'm sure is a great guy, but, like, you follow Eric July and being libertarian, and it's just nothing but sloganeering. And people retweet it like crazy, and he gets all these speaking uh, gigs, and it's like he's, you know, Dave Smith. Good podcast. But, like, you listen, I listened to this last podcast. Congratulations on being a father. Really interesting. Some insightful stuff, but it's like, you don't even have to say anything that Murray Rothbard taught about. You just have to say that Murray Rothbard was your biggest inspiration. It's like you don't even have to take a quiz to prove that's true. You just have to say it because if you don't, then fuck you. You're not a real libertarian. <laughs> you know, like Michael Malice on Tom Wood's show once said something about somebody who was a follower of uh, Milton Friedman and the Chicago School of Economics and Tom Wood's half-jokingly, but seriously, was like, uh, don't throw him under the bus like that. Because autistic libertarians would be screeching for that person's head. <clears throat> it's not about rational, logical discussions. You know, it's it's like, I don't know everything about libertarianism. I have a lot of people listening to me, but I'm not, I, I, like, I'm an, I, I am an authority but I am not the greatest authority and expert on everything. But there are some people like, (coughs) you've never read Rothbard's Property Rights or Human Rights? How do you even have a podcast? It's like because I haven't spent my entire life reading everything one person wrote. Like, I'm interested in other things. (coughs) You know, and, and it just concerns me that the people who... <clears throat> Excuse me, are supposed to be the most thoughtful, to, supposed to give people the most space. The people who want to build a world that functions based on the fact that everybody's different can't handle the fact that other people may be different than them. It really bothers me like to the point that I sometimes want to change the name of the podcast because I don't want to be associated with idiot libertarians. Like I just want my people, the people that listen to the show, and can appreciate the fact that there may be some people like Roger Paxton who are anarcho-capitalists, and there may be some people like Austin Peterson. And they're all libertarians, and they have differences, but they can discuss those differences. And doesn't mean they're bad people like i just I just don't have any desire to force you to believe what I believe because half the time I'm just trying to figure out what I believe you know and uh hear from you on places where I may be wrong so I can learn stuff but the second you do that uh, it's kind of suspect you know it's that's why tommy learn I mean it's not the only reason Tommy learns popular but Like, Jonah Goldberg is infinitely more intelligent than Tommy Lauren, but Tommy Lauren has way more Twitter followers. And it's just because she caters to the lowest common denominator. And I feel like in society, we're using social media to just cater to the lowest common denominator on every single level. I mean, I deal with this at work. Well, we need to get clicks. Okay. Well, just steal that meme, and then write a really clickbaity head headline. Okay. Well, that doesn't look good. <laughs> that doesn't look good as a brand. That doesn't serve society well. Yeah, but it, 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 it's it, it the ends justify the means. Like the the means are irrelevant as long as you get a lot of hits. Okay. <laughs> um. I guess I want to end with this because I want to leave you thinking about what kind of world you want to live in and what your values are. Um, And I want you to not be afraid once you figure out what those are to articulate them and do it in a nice way because I think it really matters. I think people are afraid to say to this woman, like, hey, if you're telling men that they're not allowed to be parts of society then that makes you a bigot cuz they don't want the backlash and i get that and it's like i got a job i i can't say that you know i'll leave that to joe rogan he's got fuck you money like i don't have fuck you money <laughs> but unchecked ideas like that eventually lead to legislation and force you know i posted that article in our group and in our group even in our group while it's her right to say whatever she wants Okay, yeah, I agree, but an unchecked idea is still a problem. She's not advocating government force. Yeah, but it's going to get there eventually. Like, someone needs to speak up and say something. And I think part of the reason that we are feeling so suicidal and so depressed and... I think we've just lost a world with... We have no meaning. It's like, why is Rick Warren's The Purpose Driven Life the second best-selling nonfiction book in history after the Bible? Because people don't know what to live for. They have no purpose. They're just kind of waking up and going to work, and I'll come home, and I'll play some Fortnite, and you know, then we'll have some kids, I'll check this off the box, You know, go to school, get my diploma, get a job at an insurance agency, buy a Toyota Corolla, get a wife have some kids, get the kids into preschool, take some cool photos, show those on social media so everybody thinks my kids are cute. Guess what? No one gives a fuck about your kids' pictures. I've never once looked at anyone's kids' pictures and thought, nah, this is interesting. I don't care. Just letting you know. Like, I post pictures of my nieces. I post them so I can look at them two years from now. I know that none of you give a shit about any any of my family members. I'm posting them for me. So, I think we're just checking a lot of boxes because society has told us these are the boxes to check. That's why I got married. I got married because that was just the next thing you do. Like, you meet a girl and then you marry her. Okay, but what's the purpose? Like, what's the point behind it? What's the goal? Um, you know, and I think by discovering our personal values, we then discover what the values of our culture should be while recognizing that other people are going to have different values. And you have to be tolerant of other people. You have to realize that everybody has an equal opportunity to thrive. Like, for me, the main value in, how, how do you set up a society for people to self-actualize, to find their true potential as they see fit, right? That's why I just don't agree with most government most government pen impedes people's ability to discover and then live out their true true self right it it keeps people in misery it keeps them dependent i want I want indie Pride to exist like indie Pride was this past weekend. I think it's awesome like there are people who went to indie Pride this past weekend who are are young people. Who are sure that they are gay or unsure, but they went and they were in an, in their culture, in their tribe, and they found meaning and acceptance. That was the best part. You know, I I make no bones that I'm a Christian conservative, and my first pride was uncomfortable. Okay, because I'm Methodist and. We don't even like touch each other, (laughs) you know. So, I was just it was very flamboyant and I was uncomfortable because I'm Protestant and it was and it was just I'm just not like I don't brag about my sex life and I just don't want to hear yours. But and so I went and but you know what, the best part about it was it was the first time I'd ever been anywhere in my life where I realized oh, there are classes of people who are are not, maybe not at that point, the first pride I went to, the gay community was not represented in society and it was an underclass, I guess the way you would put it. And people don't, didn't have the freedom to be themselves in public and in society. And this was a place where they were able to just be themselves without judgment. And you could see the joy on their face. To me, that's great. And likewise, I think that a Christian church should have the ability to say, we don't want to marry gay couples, or I don't want to bake them a cake because this is contrary to my values. Each of those two groups can live in a world where they're able to live their lives without even ever having any kind of conflict. It's only when government gets involved that we then start having the conflict. And that's the beauty of the, the a libertarian society, and so once you figure out what your values are and what your goals are and what your purpose is, you're going to be much happier because you're going to start finding people who think like you, and you're going to be able to start self you're going to be able to become your true self much faster because you're in a community of people, just as I'm sure there are people who listen to the beginning of this podcast and thought that they were the only ones on the planet who ever thought that they aren't worthy of love. It isn't until things come out of our mouth that we start to realize that we're all very similar and that we're not alone. And when we feel like we're not alone and that there are people who deal with the same struggles that we have and go through the same emotions and they're not going to judge me for having this or that, Feeling like this or thinking this or believing this that like we just live in a we would live in a happier society, but we spend most of our day at this point instead of thinking about the things that we believe in and the purpose that we have for this earth, we sit there thinking about how can I get enough stuff to make myself look a certain way on social media? And I know that sounds super cliche. But I just think sometimes cliches are totally true. Like, I think we are spending so much more time on our phones than we are living. I have a friend who is a social worker at schools dealing with elementary school kids. And she said the number one complaint from kids now is that they feel abandoned by their parents because they spend all of their time on their phone. She's like, that wasn't even really the case three years ago when I started. Like, you want your kids to grow up in a world where they feel the same way you do? Empty? Abandoned? Because you're playing Clash of Clans or you're arguing with some asshole on Facebook? You're never going to change that person's mind. You're trying to change the mind of some other libertarian who lives in Wyoming, and you're never going to do it. And you're neglecting the mind that you could shape. Anyways. Um, and I think the reason that we do that, the reason that we retreat to things like video games or phones or drinking, it's because intimacy is really hard and really scary. Like opening yourself up and allowing yourself to be vulnerable and allowing yourself to stare someone in the eyes, even the person that you have married, sometimes is like really uncomfortable, and you could get hurt. Like who wants to get hurt? So I I think we need to just start taking more chances at, at being vulnerable, at speaking our minds standing up for what we believe in even if it means that we're going to be ridiculed or outcast to certain groups of people i just feel like we're we're all glass houses afraid of rocks like everybody is just this fragile supposedly transparent pretty building and we view everybody else as rocks and they're just going to throw it at us and hurt us and like i don't know like it just it's a I'm sort of fleshing this all out, so I would appreciate if you have thoughts on any of this stuff, then uh, editor at com. Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh, Join the Facebook group, the main Facebook group. You're always allowed to go in there and post. Uh, It's at wearelibertarians.com. You can join there. Same with the Discord. We fully invite you to participate in our community. Uh, I am not the type of person who says, you know what would save society is community, and then offer you no solution. So, you know, join other like-minded libertarians, the people who care about the things that you care about, the people who enjoy. Um, listen, there's shit posting in there, but there's also thoughtful discussion. And if you have something that you think about the show, or if there is a thought from one of these episodes that you want to flesh out and discuss, if you want to correct me because you think I'm wrong, you're wrong, but I, you can try. And then uh, join the Facebook group. Or if you want to send a private note, editor at we are Uh Always enjoy talking to you guys, uh, even if it's one-on-one like this. I am, how long have I been talking? Oh, my God, two hours. I'm so sorry. Uh, if any of you made it to the end of this, I appreciate it. See, I'm negative talking. I See, I shouldn't do that. That thought is not welcome here. Uh, Thank you for listening and if you enjoy the show then please connect with us and please share the show um, if you got something out of this you i put i put the help stuff up at the beginning so if you've got some friends or family members that you're kind of worried about like send it to them and say hey i was thinking about you this reminded me of this or you know make it less threatening and say hey i was listening to this episode and man this really helped me a lot Would you take a listen and what do you think? I'd love to hear what you think. Uh, If your friend did that to you and you've made it to the end, I'm sorry you've been hoodwinked. Um, But they care about you and they were worried about you. Uh, Don't be afraid to open up dialogues with friends, especially about hard things. And if you are a person that is struggling, I'll leave you with a piece of advice that I think more than anything else changed my relationships with other people and times when I needed them changed. And that is when maybe not every person you know, maybe not the stranger on the street, but that close friend or that person that you know that you can talk to, initiate a conversation with them. And so what I would do is I would say, hey, I saw this meme. and thought of you. Good. And then they reply, ha, ha, ha. And then you say, how are you doing? And they'd say, I'm fine. And then you'd reply, and then they'd say, How are you doing? And you go, I'm not doing well. <laughs> and those those people don't care that they've been hoodwinked into an intimate conversation because you have they're they're comfortable with that, you know? Like, be honest. So when somebody asks how you're doing, tell the truth. All right, thanks for joining us here on this episode of We Are Libertarians, and I will see you on Thursday. Thank you for listening to this episode of We Are Libertarians. I'm amazed you made it to the very end, and I appreciate that, and that means that you were a true fan of We Are Libertarians, and any true fan of We Are Libertarians should listen to our other podcasts. We have a whole network of shows. We have The Chris Spengel Show, where I talk about many of my varied interests that aren't political, a lot of podcasting talk, if you're interested in getting involved in podcasting, The Brian Nichols Show. Brian talks to a lot of different folks from the left, the right, the center, libertarian movement. If you love We Are Libertarians, you will love The Brian Nichols Show. The Boss Hog of Liberty. The Boss Hog has basically created a media empire in his small town and has taken over along with his co-host D- Dakota Davis. I think it's really interesting to see how they've built a media network, and I encourage you to do the same. Upward Political Training, it's a podcast where I've put a lot of training for libertarians on how to spread the message. The cost. This is a podcast where we break down the human costs of government policy. So be sure to check that out. Raw Audio Politics, where basically I take unedited speeches and interviews and stuff that I want to listen to, and I put it in a podcast feed for you. Miranda's World. Miranda is one of the craziest human beings in a good way that i've ever met she's so entertaining and so much fun and i think you will love that and who could not listen to tad talk tad western brings you the rootness tootness good time this side of the mississippi so be sure to check that out he's one of the funniest human beings that i know and if you are chubby and you need to get in shape then you can't outrun the fork with brett bittner where he talks about keto yes i gave brett bittner a show. And you can check out a bunch of other podcasts at libertarianpodcasts.com. I have put together all of my favorite libertarian podcasts up there at libertarianpodcast.com, including our friends Lions of Liberty, The Lava Flow, The Johnny Rocket Launchpad, uh, The Scott Horton Show is one that I definitely think you should be listening to. So go check that out. Lots of great libertarian podcasts out there. You may not know where to start. Start there. And we've also got a comprehensive list of all the libertarian podcasts I can find. Thank you for listening. And if you love We Are Libertarians, please check out all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Thank you for listening to the We Are Libertarians Network. Get our other shows at wearelibertarians.com.